Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I began to realize something in the Spirit Sunday that there was victories coming to certain people in the house and around this altar and in these pews there were victories and things that you have been battling for many broke through into I can't help but feel that angels have come to rejoice with us <laughs> we know that angels and many of them are warring angels but how great is it that when you've been in battle and you start seeing victories to just gather together and rejoice. And there's yet more dimensions of victory that God wants to do in this church. I feel like we're heavy with destiny today. There's some victories of depression that God has given you complete victory over. Move into the strength of that. There's some victories of weariness. Move into the victory of that. You're overcoming that. We receive it, Father. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I bless you if you'd find a place to hear the Word of God. There are all across our world... I'm seeing a battle that's coming against the church, a very specific battle that was not as much in place before COVID as it is now. And that's a battle against a spirit of weariness and a battle against offense or being offended. And these are everywhere in the church. And if you look at the world and you see how you can't even say anything that would be kindness two years ago. And now everyone's offended. That, that spirit of offense is absolutely a battle in our world today. So when we get victories in this area that, yes, things aren't going to slow down much. It's the end of time and time is speeding up. But we can have refreshing and renewing even in the middle of the battle and the riff, everything that's going on. And we will know that we're not easily offended because all this battle of offenses is destroying the world, but we know that God is for us. Who can be against us? I want to uh, share a word with you today. I've been, it's been on my heart all day long. And uh, very practical, but I uh, feel very strongly that the Holy Ghost would have me share this with you. Again, let me say on this last night that we'll be with you until hopefully soon. Is the Lord calling again? That hopefully we'll be together with you soon again. That uh, we appreciate so much all of your kindness and your response to the Word of God. And uh, love Pastor and First Lady so much. What tremendous people of God and great wisdom. The hoary head over here is just awesome to know the great wisdom of Pastor. And uh, we love and appreciate you very much. I, I, I noticed many times that if, um, if I ever am preaching and feel a little discouraged, I just look at First Lady and she's smiling and shaking her head. It's like, oh my goodness, I must be doing good. If, if you ever get behind this pulpit, just zero in on First Lady, and you're going to know that everything is all right, and you're doing great. So excited that um, the pools, Becky and Mike, will be with us in South Africa in just a few weeks. And what a, a valuable resource to be part of the team that we are taking. I know that their lives will be changed, but they will be changing lives as the kingdom of God is uh, being ministered through them as well. And of course, all of our friends, Melissa, we love you. Appreciate you all the years together in ministry and uh, how, how great it is to be with all of you. A reading from John chapter 4 and first five verses. I will be back in the gospel of John throughout my speaking today. 
and maybe even try to do a little, little exegetical if they can stay with me if I'm not too confusing for them back in the media booth. But reading from John chapter 4 and looking at verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. This is the story that we see titled, The Woman at the Well, and we will um, try to show some wisdom in practical evangelism through this. What you have moved into, we must share with our community. The victory over the enemy that you are experiencing and moving into, we must share in evangelism with our region, with our community, with our city. Uh, Proverbs 11.30 tells us, He that winneth souls is wise. So let's talk about the wisdom in practical evangelism as exampled here in John 4. God bless you on this Tuesday night, bowtie night. You may be seated for a little while. Verse 5 tells us that Sychar is a city of Samaria. And John, who is the revelator, speaks revelation throughout his gospels, his epistles, as well as the last book of the New Testament. John declares that this was the parcel of ground, or near to the parcel of ground, that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, wanting us to understand the place that this happened being very important. When you begin to look this up, you'll find, first of all, in Joshua 24, 32, that the bones of Joseph were buried in a parcel of ground Jacob gave as an inheritance to Joseph. And that parcel of ground near that place was called Shechem. Shechem. The Old Testament city of Shechem, or at least very close, perhaps within just a mile or two from that same area, is where this particular story of the woman at Jacob's well begins to take place. Back in the day, Jacob was now married to these sisters, and having now 12 sons, he is beginning to travel back toward the promised land that God spoke to Abraham, his grandfather, and Isaac, his dad. And Jacob begins to purchase a land that was called Succoth. Succoth, he buys a parcel of land from a man in that area known as Hamor, and he begins to be prosperous with his family. He has also, Jacob does, a beautiful daughter named Dinah. And Dinah was the daughter of his first wife, Leah. And one day, Dinah went out to be with the other people in the area. And the son of Hamar, considered the prince of that region, the son of Hamar discovered her and took her and raped her. He has defiled her. She is no longer the innocent virgin she was. And now that he has defiled her, he decides that he loves her and wants to actually make her his wife. He must have been in some ways spoiled, used to getting what he wants and taking what he wants. I'm just reading that between the lines. Because he goes to his rich dad, Hamor, who sold the land to Jacob and his family. And he begins to tell Hamor, I've got to have Dinah as my wife. 
He's done this despicable act, but now he wants her as his wife. He's in love with her, and so he pleads with his father, I don't care what you've got to do. Go to Jacob and get the hand of Dinah so that I can marry her. And Hamar is in a very difficult position, but he goes toward where Jacob is. And it seems like that Jacob is not quite in this conversation or maybe in the back of this conversation because when Hamar comes to discuss what happens, he gets the brothers of Dinah. Simeon and Levi in particular and others. And they are upset, as all of you would be, if someone had raped a young daughter or sister in your family. And so they immediately decided that they would have their revenge. So they began to discuss with Hamar as Hamar is on bended knees and saying, you know, this wasn't right, but my son wants to marry Dinah. Can we work this out? And they began to express religious disgust as they said, well, all of you heathens are not circumcised like us separated people of God. Physically, they were talking about. And so this is what you need to do. If you, your son, Shechem, and all of the men in this region would become circumcised. Then we're going to feel a little better about him marrying our daughter. Then we will probably take wives of your family and we'll just all prosper together. And so Hamar thought, well, you know, my son really wants to marry her. That's a pretty tough price for not just him, but the whole mankind of the city to pay for. And so he convinced them, Shechem did, that this is what everybody needed to do for him. But Simeon and Levi, the brothers of Dinah, the sons of Jacob, were up to revenge. So now after they have gone through this situation that has caused them tremendous discomfort and they are trying to heal up, Simeon and Levi bring swords to the city and they destroy every man in the place. Kill everyone. And then they steal the wives and the children and take all their wealth back toward their place and their home. And when this happens, Jacob is embarrassed and makes this statement. Jacob said that his sons have made him a stink among the inhabitants of the land. And Shechem now, that land, represents a place of spiritual abuse and hypocrisy where people supposedly were being religious, but they were very carnal and very vengeful. It became a burned over land for revival because everybody remembered the terrible things that happened in the name of God how that church failed, how that leader failed, how there was problems and hypocrisy, and it became an identity of that very land, Shechem. In fact, not only Shechem, that area, Jacob's well there in Samaria, but all of Samaria became a place of religious bigotry. It's where evil kings lived and reigned in Samaria. In fact, John 8 and 48 says this. They claimed that Jesus had a devil and was from Samaria. Because in their mind, if you had a devil, you're from Samaria. And if you're from Samaria, you had a devil. This is the outlook of what Shechem and all of Samaria is all about. So understanding the bad reputation Who wants to be a part of any religious thing after what they saw and what they experienced? Jesus comes into that situation. Looking back at the little bit of the beginning of the book of John, the Bible tells us that Jesus chapter 2 begins his miraculous ministry in Cana of Galilee. That's the northern part of Israel. Cana of Galilee 
And then that's where he turned the water into wine. And shortly after his first miracle, he travels to Capernaum. That's in northern Galilee. And there he begins to do more miracles and stays a few days. But now Passover is at hand, so he has to travel from Galilee in northern Israel down some 75 miles, give or take according to what path was taken, through Samaria to get to Judea. Judea is where the cities of Jerusalem, it's where Bethany is, Bethlehem, Jericho, Emmaus. This is the region of Judea. And Jesus goes to Jerusalem in Judea. And there we see him demonstrating his tremendous zeal for the temple of God to be a place of prayer. He cleanses the temple. But after the feast days, Jesus stays down in Judea, the southern part of the land of Israel. And he begins to baptize individuals into his kingdom. He didn't do it, but his disciples physically did. And then also we find that he is discipling individuals to the degree that after some three years and more of John the Baptist's ministry, in a few short days, Jesus' ministry is outgrowing John the Baptist. And he's gaining such influence in Judea that the Pharisees are hearing about it. And when Jesus knows that the Pharisees, this is the first word of our text, Pharisees heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Jesus knew he needed to get out of Jerusalem and Judea so that they wouldn't start the crucifixion too soon. And so this is where we are when the scripture declares that Jesus need be, must needs go through Samaria. Now, geographically, that has to happen unless he takes a big detour. But it means more than just that's the travel route he had to take. But it simply said there was a need, a desire. I'm seeing this more and more, and I spoke about it Sunday a little bit, that Jesus gets hungry in his ministry. But it's very rarely speaking of physical hunger. And he has great desires, but it's not physical desires. And he's got even needs, but it doesn't seem to be physical needs. There's something driving him spiritually that he's got to go to that place in Samaria where there's religious bigotry, where there is a burnt over field, where people have become a place of brokenness And if you want to see the characterization of generations, Joshua declared that Shechem would be a city of refuge. So every individual that has murdered somebody and stolen something and is trying to now be revenged has gone to Shechem and that's where they've lived and had children and generations of people have been there. What a great heritage living in Shechem. And so Jesus feels this strong need. Verses 3 and 4, if you'd start following me there if you would. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Jesus leaves Judea, and now he's headed back toward Galilee. That's where Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, where most of his mighty works were done, and Cana, where his first miracle happened, and Nazareth, where he was raised up. He's going back toward Galilee, his homeland, and he needs must go through Samaria. It's the main travel route, but something is driving him more than just got to go that way. I can't get around it. There's a need in the life of Jesus, spiritual. In verse 6, Jesus is now at Jacob's well, and he's wearied with his journey, and he sits on the well, being about the sixth hour of the day. That computes to 12 o'clock at noontime. If it's any kind of weather like it has been around here the last couple of days, he was weary and he was hot and sweaty. I'm not sure that the air condition was working at Jacob's well. 
And so he was absolutely needing some refreshing. And at the same time, we find a few verses later in verse 8 that Jesus sends all of his disciples into the city of Samaria. This is very important because what will transpire with a woman at the well, she would have been much too intimidated if there was more than one man there. Jesus is going to say to her, he's thirsty. But no way the disciples would leave him without giving him something to drink. Spiritual. And so he sends them into the city. And now in verse 7, woman of Samaria, that place of religious bigotry, hypocrites. This woman comes to the well to draw water at 12 noon. What an inopportune time. In fact, the culture of the day was for the women who did this job to gather the water would do that early in the morning before it got hot. Or if they had enough water for the day, then they would wait till dusk or evening when it had cooled off. So for her to come at 12 noon speaks volumes to me that she was somehow an outcast of even that society. The other women didn't want to walk with her to the well. They considered her someone that even they didn't want to associate and be a part of. Perhaps it was her own shame and the own outlook of her life that she just didn't want to be with anybody else. She thought she would go all by herself and she knew at 12 noon nobody would be there. She didn't have to deal with people and whatever gossip or words or bad looks that they would say about her knowing her life. And so at 12 noon... She heads to the well. In verse 7, Jesus begins to speak to her and declares unto her, Give me to drink. Again, there's no way that he is physically thirsty. Disciples would have taken care of that. He is not speaking to her just as saying, Hey, I'm, I'm thirsty and no one is here to take care of me. Would you, would you give me to drink? But he is, and this is very important, He's expressing a vulnerability in a way that will speak to her that she can bring value to him. And when he does this, it breaks down a little bit of them walls that she has up. Nobody wants to talk to me. I'm just going to do what I want. I'll come when I want. And when he speaks to her and says, you can do something that would be very kind to me. Would you give me to drink? In verse 9, we see that she is intrigued because Jesus has crossed cultural and prejudicial barriers on at least three levels. Because he's a man and she's a female. Because he's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. Because he's a stranger and not a friend or a close acquaintance. And he has broken cultural tradition in at least three levels to speak to her in a way of asking her help. Culturally, the Bible tells us in this same verse that Jews have no way with the Samaritans. They don't talk to each other. They don't look at each other. They don't even give the occasional sup. They ignore each other. Verse 9, continue. Focus is not on their differences, but Jesus begins to speak of their commonalities. She has brought a vessel to the well because she is thirsty and she needs water. And he common touches her by saying, I need water just like you do. You might be a Samaritan and I might be a Jew, but we've got a common need here that we need water. So he's breaking down more barriers, first by asking her, you can help me if you would be kind enough, and then by breaking down barriers and saying we are a lot more alike than what our cultural differences are declaring. Wisdom for personal evangelism. In verse 9, the kindness... And the gentleness of Jesus 
breaks down these barriers until she also begins to engage in conversation. He has reached out with kindness and gentleness with these two principles, and she returns in kindness as well. But you see something about her personality because she goes right to the elephant in the room. And when she says, why are you talking to me? Jews have no part with Samaritans. She stays, she opens up to Jesus staying on the same subject and connecting and speaking about their connection of thirst and relationship that is just beginning. But Jesus doesn't answer her about the problems that are in the culture. But he goes directly to her and says, if you knew the gift of God, this, this is crazy. Off subject. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who I am, you would not pigeon me, pigeonhole me in the same direction that you have pigeonholed other Jewish men. You've already decided who I am and what I am. But if you knew a gift that God wanted to give you and who you're actually talking to, there's no way that you'd treat me like you'd treat everybody else because of the culture of what's happening. And then he begins to speak to her about this gift that is water she would never thirst again, that would be a well springing up into everlasting life just like they had both a physical thirst and need Jesus is now speaking to her that you have more than a physical need you have a spiritual thirst and there is water that will fulfill and quench that thirst he's relating to herself gently and kindly but now he's moving things to the spiritual realm using the same context of water he could have called it anything. He could have said, there's a gift of God that will be like a rushing mighty wind. That doesn't relate to their conversation. And their conversation is where the relationship is. So he moved straight from where they were talking about and began to speak about living water that she would never thirst again. Her thoughts just a little bit, verse 11, still on the physical and she begins to search for who he is when she asks about their common ancestor. Now she's already broken down walls, and she's admitting that we both have our father, Jacob, who dug this well. Are you greater than him? Struggling to find the spiritual. Now Jacob is known throughout Samaria and throughout, throughout Jerusalem and all of Israel as the father of God, as the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this isn't just, oh, do you know your family tree? Yeah, I've got a Jacob back at my great-grandfather. She is reaching back to the spiritual essence because he has brought this in. We're not just talking about water in a well, but he's talking about living water, something spiritual. So they, but she begins to open up and declares, okay, I've got a connection. Your father and my father, that spiritual man, the, father, the God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 13 the gift is not this water. Verse 14, the resources is not this well. But I shall give you living water springing up into everlasting life. This is a spiritual, and now it is no doubt what he is speaking about and what she is hearing, that he's not talking about water from this well, but he's talking about something spiritually that will satisfy, satisfy the hunger of her soul. Just a few short sentences. And the wisdom of God has moved from where there is no chance of strangers talking, of this woman talking to this man, of this Jew talking with this Samaritan, and just a few simple areas where he made himself vulnerable and opened up, and she felt comfortable to be vulnerable and open up. Now he's at a place where he's ministering to her spiritually. 
her response in verse 15 is, you sold me. <laughs> Give me this everlasting life. She is admitting now her need and her hunger for spiritual healing, for spiritual ministry. In verse 16, that exposure of her need and her vulnerability is even going to a next level when Jesus says this. And I know reading these words in black and white or red and white as the case might be, this looks like it could be very sharp and very harsh. But knowing the presence of the Holy Ghost and how this works, I've seen it operate so many times. I have to tell you, he probably looked at her with tears in his eyes and said, would you go get your husband and bring him here? Not, go get your husband. And condemning what immediately is going to make her go to greater vulnerability in the spirit. But with kindness, this also is a beautiful way for him to say, you know, I'm not flirting with you. Wisdom in practical evangelism. Go get your husband. That is a proper way of a spiritual authority. And it's also a good way to speak that I'm not trying to pursue a relationship that is ungodly, but absolutely I'm talking about spiritual things. Go get your husband. And in verse 17, she doesn't get mad and stomp off because his response must have been with such gentleness and kindness and tears in his eyes that she must have dropped her head and said, I have no husband. And then a word of knowledge begins to operate through. And by the way, I can pull out four or five gifts of the Spirit that I believe are operating here. Word of knowledge begins to flow and Jesus speaks to her again. Must have been tears in his eyes. It must have been with gentleness and kindness as he said you speak very well that you don't have any husband because you've had five husbands and the man you're with right now is not your husband. Now, he's making her extremely vulnerable. He's exposing every brokenness of relationship and confusion of her mind and all the cynicism that she has dealt with all of this time. But because he has been little by little through kindness through gentleness, breaking down these barriers, she is now not afraid and she's not offended when he says, yes, you've had five husbands. Instead, she responds with this statement. Uh, I perceive you're a prophet. She's not just saying, hey, you blow me away. What she's saying, I recognize that you come as a voice from God to my life. And what she did by saying that is open herself up completely for everything that Jesus needed to do in ministry to her. When she said, I know that you're from God, you're a prophet, you're speaking right to my life. So, let it happen. Let's do this. I want this water, I want this healing, I want this strength. But When he begins to expose this, it has already been sifted into their conversation because they've been talking about great thirst that she has and that he can help her with. And it becomes obvious now that this is what he's dealing with. And he's not saying, oh, you've been such a failure in relationship. He's saying, you have been looking for love all your life. You found an individual that you thought would bring you joy and would bring you peace, and you gave your life to that individual. And now you don't have that relationship anymore. But you struggle past your hurt and your brokenness and you're so desperate for peace and joy and love that you look to someone else. Do you realize how difficult that is? Gave your heart to him and he broke your heart. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. But somehow you're still so thirsty to be loved and to operate in a place where the fullness of the who you are spiritually would find peace and joy. Three times she broke past all her hurt and confusion and married the third and the fourth. 
She's got scars and brokenness and hurt, but still something within her desperately wants to touch true love. And he's not just saying what an evil person you've been, what a failure you've been. He's saying, look how much you've been searching for love. And he says it in such a way that makes her so vulnerable. Confession is upon her as she has made this statement. Timing brought down the walls. Verse 18, truth has been revealed and all this talk about living water now becomes very clear that God wants to do something in this woman's life that will change her spiritually, give her a new eternity. That thirst that cannot be quenched is is a search for love. It's a search to be loved. It's a search for a pure way. It's a search for peace. It's a search for love. No, no, no husband has been able to fulfill that. All these broken relationships. She now changes the situation, the conversation rather, because she has been fully exposed as one that has been searching for love in all the wrong places, if you will. And she's admitting, that's who I am. But then she begins to share something deep in her spirit. And she says, I've always wanted to worship. Not to, not go through a religious ceremony or do this or that. I've always wanted to connect with God in a place of worship. And she confesses this strong desire to do this. But then she also speaks of her confusion when she says my religious fathers told me I should do this, and, and your religious fathers told you to do that. I don't know what religion to believe. I don't know what father to trust in. I don't even know how to go about this. I want to be a worshiper, but who do I believe? My fathers, your fathers. And Jesus makes a powerful statement when he says, Our fathers worship in this mountain. You say Jerusalem is where you ought to worship. Verse 21. Jesus saith unto her, woman. This is that same Greek word that is rarely used except it's talking about a spouse. And when he speaks to this stranger that was a stranger just a few moments ago, now he is so close to her in his spirit that the terms of endearment that he calls her woman is almost like the way a husband would speak to a beloved wife. He said, believe me, I can't tell you what happened in the past, but the hour cometh and now is. I, I, can't, I can't say what your father said that and what this one did that and what that, but what I know is from now on, the hour is come upon us when true worshipers shall worship the Father. Now, he blew her away with that because the Old Testament law that she understood did not know God as their father. So he's saying the daddy issues that you obviously have, always trying to prove yourself, looking for that love. He said, don't even look back to your earthly fathers and that brokenness. But when you worship, know that God wants to be your father. And prophecies operating and words of knowledge is operating. And so much of the spirit, discerned of spirits is operating. And he tells her the hours cometh now is true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that's what he's already explained to her about that longing in her heart is a spiritual thing. And that she needs to be honest and truthful just like she is vulnerable before God in her worship. God is a spirit, verse 24, they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman saith unto him in verse 25, and she already has an inkling, she just needs it confirmed. She said, I know this, that when the prophesied Messiah would come, he will tell us all of these things. The deep things that he's explaining to her. And he's like, you got me. He that's speaking to you and he. In the next few verses, let, let me read them for you. Verse 27. 
And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou? Why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot. She forgot why she was even there. And went her way into the city and saith to the men. She's become very comfortable talking to men. She's not sure the women will even relate to her. They gossip about her. They're talking about her. They don't, any of the women don't want them around her brother or her husband. She's comfortable talking to the men, so she testifies to the men and say, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. It's got to be the Christ. Then they went out of the city and came to Jesus. In the meanwhile, his disciples were praying and saying, Master, eat, eat, please eat. And he said unto them, I have meat to eat that thou knowest not of. Therefore the disciples said one to another, Who brought him something to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Let me say this. As the end time grows closer and closer and we're upon it, this is where we're going to find strength and refreshing as the people of God, ministering to broken, hurting people. In church services that we used to all just come to get refreshed, we're going to find our refreshing in evangelism and ministry and helping and loving others. Verse 35, Say not ye there yet four months, then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that are white already to harvest. What he's saying is this. You just come from a city of tremendous harvest. All the men come out, hear what he has to say. The entire city is turned upside down. And when they went in to get meat and come back, they didn't look at anybody. They didn't sup anybody. Talk to anybody. They sure weren't ministering to anybody. And yet that was, Shechem was a place, Sychar was a place of great harvest, and they had no clue. And so he's explaining to them, I sent you to reap, verse 38, wherein you bestowed no labor, other men labor, and you're entered into their labors. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him. For the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when they came to beseech him, more believed because of his own word. And this is what the city said to that woman. Now we believe not because of your testimony, but we experienced him ourselves. We heard him ourselves. He ministered to us personally. And we know that indeed he is the Christ, Savior of the world. Would you stand with me? I don't think that I've ever heard this story dissected. and I've been chewing on it for a while. and I think it speaks to me so much because I, I find myself in this story. Where I know that there are people that are so different than me. And what we are culturally used to doing is getting on that airplane and sitting down and never even looking at the person beside me. Because I know if I look at them, I feel compassion, and they're probably going to want to, God forbid, talk to me. But I'm finding more and more that the Holy Ghost putting the needs be in me. I walked through TSA security the other day in Atlanta. Who knows where we were going? I have no idea. My wife was a few steps behind me. And as we turned to rush with a quarter of a million people going to be in that airport that day, started to rush. And there was a gentleman sitting right there where they have benches to, you know, get dressed after they strip search you at TSA. And he was sitting there, and in the spirit I had a quick vision. 
he was bowled over, bawling in the spirit, a vision. And when I looked at him close, I could see a little tear in the corner of his eye. Nobody's around him. He's there all by himself. I have no idea what's going on in his life. But I was compelled to stop. And I put my hand on him, spoke kindly to him, prayed in the spirit, spoke in tongues a little bit, asked for the blessings of God to be upon his life. And he started to cry. I felt, I felt just to pray, and then I walked on. I don't know if I missed an opportunity to pray somebody through the Holy Ghost right there in the Atlanta airport. Hey, nobody even pay attention. You know, it's crazy. But I know more and more I'm feeling this needs to stop somebody that's so different than me and show kindness and gentleness and to find a commonality and from that commonality, get just a little spiritual hunger, healing, and let the Holy Ghost just lead and guide until there's immigrants, Sister Melissa, that are texting us every once in a while and wanting to come to our church and eat at our table. And This is wisdom in personal evangelism. And whatever we can do to make that happen, Holy Ghost is just not going to quit messing with us until we just start letting ourselves do that. We're pretty good at when people come among us in our atmosphere here and they're blown away to love on them as we should and to help them and to pray for them and all the things that we should do. But there's an evangelism that we need to do outside these four walls. And when I walk up to, my wife did this uh, back a few months ago when, you know, pandemic was more on everybody's minds and thoughts. And we went to a grocery store and she saw a beautiful middle-aged black American lady that I think some things fed out of her buggy as she's trying to put them into her car and and Lois ran over to her, can I help you? And help pick up the groceries, put it in the car. Uh, you know, just from different backgrounds, different places, doesn't know anything about. And uh, the lady made a statement. She said, I'm surprised that you would come over and help me. And I'm not sure if she even defined that, Lois, by saying, you know, with COVID and everything going on or because, you know, we're different races. or I don't know that she defined it. It surprised her. More and more, Holy Ghost is going to lead you to places like that. And if we'll be kind and gentle, Holy Ghost is going to give you words of knowledge, discerning of spirits. And in a matter of a little bit of time, you could turn your whole city upside down by ministering to one immigrant Who knows what backslidden state or hurt or brokenness? This city is full of people that are cynical about religion. If we could get the backsliders within a 50-mile radius, you couldn't put them in a civic center close by. Some would say it's a burnt-over field. Because everyone knows what happened at that church and there's a reputation for this and a brokenness for that. But I'm telling you, the fields are wide and ready to harvest. And it could be that one testimony turns an entire LBQ community. That one testimony turns an entire confused generation of young people that one testimony could be what turns the city upside down Father baptize us with a love for our city 
and our neighbors and stinking Samaritans just help us to love them again all those that are so far from where we are just a kindness just a gentleness just a little demonstration that you can help us by asking them of a need in our hearts and our lives would you give us wisdom because when in the souls is wise give us wisdom if we lack wisdom ask you'll give liberally give us wisdom so that we can do the work of God in our generation Jesus anybody ready to press past your comfort zone and to let God use you in personal evangelism I want you to come stand in the front we're just going to ask God to help us, to anoint us, and to lead us and guide us and make us aware of where we are so that we can do His work. Help us to love like you love, Father. Give us wisdom. Let the fruit of the Spirit operate in gentleness and kindness and meekness. Make us effective, not just in this building, but make us effective outside this building. And let that dimension of victory that has been here all weekend give us victory in evangelism. Give us victory in winning the lost. Give us victory in the Great Commission. Give us, give us victory this area of our life. Let your desire be heard by heaven, by a cry, by a, by a prayer, by an intercession. Let the Holy Ghost make you effective.